Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. He cranked it up to 10 and (laughs) did a little jog across the yard. (laughs) Gave himself one of those lift you up out of your shoes jolts and fell down <laughs> back on the ground. And said, I think I'm beating myself. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, good times. Did he like wake up like a couple hours yeah. later? Or <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right. He did in Myanmar. <laughs> wow. It was like, it's like lost. Exactly. <laughs> There's a pol- was there, there's a polar bear. There's a polar bear playing poker. Totally. Oh, awesome. Totally. How you been? Fantastic. I caught a couple of movies this week that I've been meaning to catch up on. Did you let him go? 
Good. Can I tell you? You know, it's it's uh, it's me catching up on films that I uh, I should have seen prior to now. It wasn't uh, the the Fast and the Furious series again, was it? <laughs> no, <laughs> I did not do the whole series again. I caught uh, Les Misérables. Oh, believe oh, it or so not, I did not Oscar see that in the theaters. I did not see that in the theater, and so I took it took me about six settings, six <laughs> sessions to get through it. Uh, but it was, it, you know, it was funny. It was like every, it was like watching it serially. I watched it in half hour increments. Right. And right. It, it was like watching a little mini series. Fantastic. Perfect for YouTube. He <laughs> <laughs> totally should have done that movie on YouTube. Uh, I, I quite liked it. But the, the one I, I actually found myself more amused by, as you predicted, uh, this is the end. Ah, uh, yes. They're totally, th- those are two movies in, in a, little bit of a different class a little bit although i you know i loved les mis the uh the musical mm-hmm. i less loved the movie adaptation really so i i would much rather watch this is the end again yeah i think i think that's kind of where i'm falling falling on it i you know the problem uh inspector javert yeah he was he was <laughs> It's a little painful to listen to. Brooding kind of throat singing going on. (laughs) Something. Very. uh, And there were other issues, too. I I don't know. I really didn't like the camera work in that one. I, you know, I'll tell you the thing that stands out for me, which is probably, well, two things. First of all, I actually thought Hugh Jackman did a terrific job. Yeah. Uh, And I particularly loved Paris. Uh, I thought the, the actual set design uh, that was great. I, I really in, enjoyed kind of the experience of Paris. And in the springtime? Paris in the springtime. <laughs> uh, and yes. then I was even more delighted to watch <laughs> This is the End, which ironically is is what I sort of imagined should have happened to Paris. <laughs> you see anything else good this weekend? Um, it, no, it's been a really busy week. I've been watching, uh, a, a classic Japanese film, Harakiri. And, hello uh, Kitty. <laughs> hello Kitty. Not Hello Kitty, ha- Harakiri, which is like <laughs> <laughs> when a samurai kills themselves, they, you know, they stick their, yeah. their blade Harry, in their Harry Carey. Harry Carey. I'm still working my way through it, but it is really good. So it's been it's been a long week. I really haven't had a lot Can of time I, to how does, do much. Let me guess how it ends. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh you. Okay, one oh, more. One yeah. more. Andrew's Game. I haven't seen it. You should. I'll get around to I it. I know, but you it's should see it. Don't see it in 3D because, you know, it's fake. It's fake 3D on Ender's Game. So is Gravity, and that was great, but I still won't see Ender's Game in 3D. I know, but here's the thing. Uh, Ender's Game, you, you owe it to yourself to see Ender's Game after that fantastic Harrison Ford interview <laughs> in GQ true. that was posted on the Facebook page. Uh, I, that did, was Steve responsible for that? I don't know. I don't know. But well, it, it was, was not me, and it wasn't, it wasn't you. Me, so it had to be Steve. <laughs> so Steve tracked this down. This the, the best, the single best interview I have ever heard with Harrison Ford or any curmudgeonly seventy-one-year-old actor. 
and possibly shortest too. Yes, <laughs> that would have been. Time. I you wonder like the how long he actually had to do that interview. So you, you get like you know, seventy two seconds with the uh, with Mister Ford, and and these it was terrible. The questions were terrible, and the answers were fantastic. Harrison Ford answered exactly as he should have, given the quality of the questions he was being given. And so you should check that out on Facebook.com uh, slash The Next Reel. Absolutely. I just gave a little plug, a pre-plug. Uh, okay, so you were, you were saying you had a rough week. You're watching this uh, Japanese film, which is making you speak in <laughs> Japanglish. Yes, yes. Uh, it's Japanglish. Much, yes. to the, so that, much to the chagrin of it. Japanese I, I wish I everywhere. had more to say, but I, I don't. I'm still working my way through it and uh, enjoying it, though. Good. Enjoying enjoying the process. Excellent. That was a little pre-plug. Do you see what I did? A little pre-plug for our movie tonight? <laughs> that was good. I didn't see it. It was a little curveball. <laughs> yeah, I, I like to throw those every now and then. That was nice. This is the next reel, everybody. You should definitely, uh, you should not turn off your internet machines right now if you're listening to the show. We, we're so glad that you came to hang out with us. Uh, and you can find us at thenextreel.com. It's where you can find all of our old shows. You can check out the film board, our monthly gathering to uh, talk about new releases with fantastic uh, contributors, regular monthly contributors. You can uh, read the fantastic blog that is, uh, uh, we've got a blog runner. You get, it's like a showrunner. I'm calling him the blog runner. Right. Maybe the blog whisperer. Steve, the <laughs> kindly Steve Sarmento. Uh, you can read the, the blog stylings of Steve Sarmento uh, over at the blog and uh, and on uh, Facebook. Again, facebook.com slash the next reel. If you head over to the contact page, you can find all the different places to find us. Uh, the most important one, I think we decided the third most important one, now ranked second most important one because there's real prizes associated with it. That's right. The uh, Instagram Guess the Movie Pony Prize. Andy, tell the people where we stand. It's, uh, you know, we're, we're plowing through this thing. We had, uh, this week we did 1961's fantastic black and white ghost story, The Innocence. And The Lady's Revenge got it after about four images. So Four images. Uh, where does that stand? How does that rank in sort of average, you know... What's what's the heart the longest it's taken? So I, there there's some we've, people just we've haven't got gotten, a full right, week. Just... We've got a full week before okay. of images, and I mean, you know, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the '78 one, um, that was a really hard one for people. It wasn't until I threw up the image that the classic image of yeah. Donald Sutherland doing his little alien scream at the very end of the film that people finally figured that one out. That right. was a tricky one, but. Uh, yeah, the ladies' revenge came through on the innocence. I think I gave it away by showing an image with uh, Deborah Kerr in it, but yeah. uh, you know, she—it's—it's it's a film that she said she loves, so she she caught on pretty quickly as soon as that image went out. Fantastic! So we're working up toward our our big uh, 2018 award ceremony. <laughs> That's right. It'll be just like the end of Star Wars. That's what sort of <laughs> award ceremony we're going to do for our pony prize. <laughs> but but it's going to be the end of Star Wars episode uh, seven. So we don't really know what it's going to be like, actually. Yet. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, excellent. So uh, do you have a film in mind for this week that you're going to stump the people with? Starts uh, uh, tomorrow, right? You bet. It is. You're not going to actually say it. No. Okay, good.
okay, so very excited about that. Head over to Instagram.com slash the next reel. You can follow us there and make sure you jump in on the Instagram next reel guess the movie pony prize. And uh, I notice you've you've squatted the hashtag pony prize. I have. I and have. Nobody is there. Nobody was upset about that. Apparently, that was not one of the more competitive <laughs> hashtags. No, there are quite a few guess the movie uh, or uh, uh, hashtags out there. That but no pony people, prize. But no pony prize. So I'd I like to. I I'd like it. to uh, <laughs> claim that as my own. <laughs> I think it's great. I'm proud of you. Good work, son. Thank you. Let's talk about trailers. Yes, let's. Uh, my trailer this week. I'm going to go first because my movie's already out. This sort of yes. surprise. This sort of sort of surprised <laughs> me, uh, mostly because of my uh, woeful lack of planning. I came a little bit late to the show, and I hadn't picked a trailer yet. And so, uh, after much uh, scrounging, stumbled upon this film, Mister Nobody, directed, written, and directed by Jaco Van Dormeil. <laughs> <laughs> taking potentially great liberties with the pronunciation of, of uh, Mr. Van Dormael's name. Uh, and uh, this is a drama fantasy romance. It's, it strikes me a little bit uh, Benjamin Button. If Benjamin Button was taking place in uh, with a, a, a hearty dash of string theory in it. Yeah, it, it really has kind of that... Um... Uh, sliding doors. Sliding doors. Yeah. 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 I love it. Uh, it really does. This looks fantastic. I'm, I, it's uh, it stars Jared Lee Doan, Sarah Polly, Diane Kruger. Um, the film looks, uh, it's got a really interesting look to it. Lots of wonderful makeup and uh, uh, looks like CGI age work as uh, Jared Leto jumps uh, forward and backward through time in this trailer it's definitely worth checking out you can check it out on the this week's post on the uh, the next com, and uh, you can go get the movie it's uh, just came out last week or this week earlier this week i think or maybe it was uh, friday last week anyway it came out uh, in november uh at uh, on itunes and uh, it hits theaters when did you say it hits theaters it's already on uh i think it's in theaters i think oh, it's it started playing limited november 1st that's right. Started playing limited November 1st. So it's in theaters. You should check it out. Mr. Nobody um, uh, with Jared Leto and Sarah Polly. It looks great. Yeah, it looks really clever. I like the way it looks like we're following him in at least three different versions of his life. So uh, it's kind of exciting. Yeah, it looks really interesting. Um, and I like that uh, that Jared Leto. You no, know, he's coming yeah, up he's... in another one for, that you're excited about, right? The uh, Dallas Buyers Club. Yes, he looks great in that, and I think, uh, uh, you know, there's already been quite a bit of uh, buzz about both him and McConaughey getting some notice for their roles, so yeah, we'll see. I'm looking forward to seeing that one. Awesome. Awesome, awesome. What do you have this week? My trailer is a very interesting-looking film that I hadn't heard of. It just kind of, uh, like you, kind of this one popped in the periphery of a conversation and I watched it. It's called The Philosophers. It's a really fascinating film about basically kind of a philosophy class where the teacher gives his students this assignment, uh, putting them in a situation where they are uh, the last survivor or they're surviving this, you know, cataclysmic apocalyptic event and they run into a, a shelter to survive. But there's 21 of them, 
and they can only keep 10 of them. And so creates the situation where they, you know, he gives them, passes a hat around. They each have a, uh, a, a career and then they have to decide who lives and who dies. And it turns into this philosophical challenge for them. And then also the teacher as they say, well, why should we keep you in here? And uh, very interesting. And then they start playing with different, uh, they go through that, uh, scenario, then they go through another scenario, a couple different scenarios as the students really kind of struggle and try to figure out, you know, the best way for who's going to live and who's going to die. And I like that it's done in a way where you see them in class talking about this, but then it actually puts them in these situations. And so you see them outside of this bunker and you see them killing people and trying to figure out who's going to live and die, who's going to get let into it and stuff. It looks really fascinating. And I am quite excited to see it. The, if it's as good as the trailer makes it look, this could be you know a really great film for the year. It's, I'm, uh, it, I'm stymied by this film. I'm it's one of those films that I think you're right. It has that same effect on me that uh, Cloud Atlas did the first time I saw the trailer. You know, it was like this. Yeah. It starts out and it's kind of you're in this uh, this very real sort of universe. And then suddenly everything comes off the rails. And it's just it, it, it looks really beautiful. Um, and, and yet, you know, I mean, it, it, everything hinges on how they transition between this fantasy universe and the classroom. Yeah, exactly. How, how do they get there? That's that's the that's the thing that uh, that I'm going to be thinking about when I see this film. So uh, I think it looks terrific. Yeah, and James Darcy, who was in Cloud Atlas, is right. the teacher in this. So, yeah. and then Bonnie Wright, who is uh, Ginny Weasley, is in it. So, yeah, there's something about this that really looks great, and I hope it lives up to the potential. Wow, I hadn't put that connection, the the uh, Ginny Weasley connection. Yeah, that's interesting. This one opens December 11th. I'm guessing it's going to be a limited release, but it uh, it looks like a, a fascinating one to check out. Excellent, excellent, yeah, good choice. Good uh, choice. And now I think we should learn a little bit about the process. Something big, huh? That's what they all think back home. Something big. Could be something big. What is it? Sworn to secrecy. Without the formula, the Japanese, or anyone else for that matter, would have nothing. You're asking us to consider making a vast investment. I want to know, what do we own? Obviously, we don't want to get too specific for security reasons. Mr. Ross, take a picture, sir? Sure. I'll give you $1,000 for that camera. Ever get the urge to do something adventurous, in spite of the ancient wisdom against inter-office romances? I think you're a lovely young woman. Can you see without those things? Sure. Why don't you take them off? The fella said we must never forget that we are human. And as humans, we must dream. And when we dream, we dream of money. Everybody on vacation's got a story. What do you do? I'm with the FBI. We have no idea who anyone is. Like they say at the airport, did anyone give you a package? You mistrust everybody? Just strangers. You now have a Swiss bank account. Code word Patty. Why? Mr. Ross. You're in a lot of trouble. I've done nothing wrong. Now, Mr. Ross, if I told you this story, would you believe it? It is the oldest confidence game on the books. The Spanish prison. The man who supplies the money gets the fortune and the girl. I believe we have a problem. People aren't that complicated, Joe. Good people, bad people. They generally look like what they are. 
Why are so many people having such difficulty? That's the question baffles me. This is the first uh, film written and directed by our uh, our friend, a friend of the show, David Mamet. <laughs> that would have been awesome if we could have gotten gotten through that without without breaking. Friend of the show, Steve Martin, Campbell Scott, friends of the show. And we'll be... uh, th- this is a, a a small series we're doing. We're just doing two films of David Mamet. We're uh, we're as we we said before. We're excited about this one. These are the films that are written and directed by uh, David Mamet. The um, um, uh, well, he's two two of the two films. of the films written and directed by David Mamet. But that that's our our deciding factor on whether or not they made it into this series. And right. uh, and. I think, you know, when we look at in the sort of canon of great American writers, David Mamet, you would have to, particularly writers of the stage, you would have to say David Mamet is, he's pretty high up there. Would you agree? I, you know, I directed a David Mamet play. Yeah? How'd that go for you? It, well, it was with high school students. And let me just was tell it, you. Was it sexual <laughs> perversity in Chicago? <laughs> no, it actually was... Um, Revenge of the Space Pandas or Binky Rudich and the Two Speed Clock, <laughs> which is a really... one of his one of his more cerebral works. <laughs> it's really wacky, but I will say it still is written in mammoth speak, which is not easy for high school students to grasp. And so I wouldn't say that it went well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Andy, yes, yes. that's good. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I managed to to uh, to do uh, to direct a, a mammoth myself. Uh, the Duck Variations. Have you read this this one? I, I have not. Uh, it's another one to uh, to check out. Big fan yeah. of mammoth. I like I like the mammoth. I like what he does. You know, I put mammoth up there with uh, in terms of it. You know, whatever you think of style of uh, voice. I admire people uh, in the caliber of David Mamet and Aaron Sorkin uh, and, and Patty Chayefsky. Uh, you know, they're all up there for me in that same category as people who wield words uh, with great precision. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I think you know I I feel like I want to open with that comment on this film in particular because so much about the 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 language and the reading of the language in this film um, is a, a layer on which uh, we have to adjust ourselves to the con itself. Okay, that's my pitch. That that's your pitch. Huh? Now you hadn't seen this movie in some twenty years, right? I well, hadn't the, seen this fifteen years, right? Is that about right? Since it came out in '98, yeah. So yeah, it's been it's been a little while. It, it, the I remember watching this film and really being impressed with the uh, the twists and turns of the story. I really kind of enjoyed the way that he laid it out, and I enjoyed all the the surprises as as they happened. Watching it again, even though it's like 16, 17 years later, however many years it is, I can't do math right now. I I found it a lot more obvious. And I don't know if I would say I found the twists and turns themselves obvious, but I actually found his writing more obvious in this. And it bothered me. Hmm. Now, I will say, 
the vast majority of it, I, I think you're right. His writing has the uh, the precision and everything else that you were talking about that that works really well, and I like it in context of the story. I think what bothers me, and we can just get this out of the way now, just so it's out there. I felt like he, when he wrote this, and I, maybe I'm wrong, but I felt like when he wrote this, he really felt like he had to nail the points in on a few key issues over and over and over again to the point where watching it a second time, I felt like it was, it's like, hello, could you have made that many, any more obvious for me? The first being when we meet um, Rebecca Pigeon's character um, on the plane, or maybe not when we, when we meet her, I think it's when they're coming back, uh, her character Susan, and she's talking on and on and on about how um, you can't tell who anyone is. You can't tell who anyone is. I don't know how many times she says that, but I feel like she's talking about that, saying that line for like five minutes, getting the point across, yes, yes, I understand we can't trust anybody, and leading me to believe you're probably not someone we can trust either. It's, it was like so blatant the way that he was doing that. Likewise, at, toward the end of the film, when he's hitting it over the head, do you have your ticket? Oh, do you have your ticket? Don't forget your ticket. It's like, yes, I get it. There's something about his ticket that is awry, and I have a feeling that you know it's, we're going to find out here in a minute. It drove me nuts when he was doing those things with the writing, and I didn't understand why he made those things stand out so much. Yeah, I, I agree with you, and I have the same sensation, uh, that, that sensation of, um, you know, you've, the first time you watch this film, it is much more fun than any subsequent time <laughs> right. you watch this, any subsequent time. It's like it doesn't age uh, really as well if, if, you are, if you already know you know, you want to say if you already know the trick, but you know, like yeah. the 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 trick is is uh, sort of multivariate. You know, I I, I think um, um, this is one of those films. You know, as a con film, it's frustrating uh, because it, it's it it's full of this this sort of Hitchcockian uh, MacGuffin stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Like you know, it, it, everywhere you turn, there's something you're you're shown, but you really don't need to care about. Right. Um, it seems like every scene there's <laughs> something else not to care about. Uh, there's the process. We don't need to care about that. It turns out mm -hmm. there's there's the there's his little journal. Well, we don't really need to care about that. There's there's the book. You sort of need to care about that, but then you need to stop caring about that. And the videotapes. There's the videotapes. You totally don't. It turns out don't don't care about. Yeah, it that. turns out you think yeah. you do, but you think you do, <laughs> but you don't. And then there's the title of the film. Uh, which you turns out really don't need to care about care uh, care about at all because they never actually do the Spanish prisoner con, the the title of the film itself is a con. So, um, it, uh, which is uh, ironic. I didn't even know there was a title for the con that was in the film. Do you know what the title is of the mean? con? I, I just missed what you. No, there's a con in the film, right? The con in the film is a very common con. It's the it's the hey I'm a Nigerian prince con would you please email oh, right. me your PayPal address well, right but, that, that's which the is, con yeah and it's right, called right. the Murphy did they say that in the film no they didn't but that's what oh, the con you... is actually called gotcha. in in okay. real life right gotcha con is called the Murphy uh, and not the Spanish prisoner which is never done in the film which 
is another example of just, I I think, the layers that Mamet sort of piles on to this film. It sort of gives a lot of weight to a lot of very small elements that I think convolute the overall sort of fluidity of the of the film itself and, and right. get in the way of, I, I think, um, the overall story. And, and you really don't ever get ahead, you know, where, where I, I think, um, you know, the great con films, you know, The Sting, uh, you get these fantastic con films that give you, give you the audience a little bit more uh, awareness than your protagonist has right so so you know just enough ahead of wherever he is uh that you feel like you're a little bit in control and out of control because you have that feeling of of uh you know uh of urgency right please find out that the ticket is actually to venezuela please find it you don't really get that you only get a little taste of that right at the end uh, as he's going through the metal detector and turns around and we see which i think is an is a great example of what you're talking about that the hammering over the head bit when you see the x-ray go through of the red uh camera case and it's actually a gun yeah uh that nobody raises any alarms about ironically enough um but we had already seen that visual trick done in the very opening of the scene uh, of the film, and so this was the gun on the mantelpiece. Uh, yeah. Like that was just a, a a visual cue that he just needed to hammer home. So I, you know, I had real problems with with that uh, on this viewing with that that sort of element. Like you say, it's the hammering over the head thing, and yet uh, characters like Ricky Jay. Uh, which is, you know, one reviewer uh, or one critic had said it's like a, a, a three-piece suit-clad Confucius who drifts in and out of the uh, of the film, dropping his little bits of wisdom and witticisms. I, I find Ricky Jay just fantastic in this. I just love it when he comes out. He, like, saves every scene for me uh, on, in this see, film. And see, he felt like he was there just to deliver the one-liners to me. Exactly. I mean, I... Which didn't work for me because it always took me out of the film because then I had to go, okay, well, why is he saying that though? And who would actually walk around (laughs) saying things like that? I mean, I love them. Don't get me wrong. I love those one liners. I don't think you do. I don't think you do. And I think that's really, that's that's just mean. I'm calling him. (laughs) I love them out of context of the film. In context, I'm like, nobody says things like that. And why, why is. Uh, Joe Campbell Scott's character. Why is he just standing there acknowledging it? Because it's like, what does that even mean? I don't <laughs> but I really do love the, Ricky J. See, I the really thing do. is, Ricky J. plays his character as his attorney for the company. Don't worry, you don't need to care about the company. Uh, his character, George Lang, he's uh, he he says he says my single favorite number one line of any film ever. It's on our website, yeah. It's on our website, and it's uh, it's in this. Worry is like interest paid in advance on a debt that never comes due. Great line. Uh, but, man, he he has so many other great ones. And they're in really weird times, you know? Like yes, the, they uh, are. <laughs> the, the They're out on the dock, and he's wearing a suit on the dock. And everybody's talking, and he says, uh, We must never forget that we are human. And as humans, we dream. And when we dream... <laughs> We dream of money. <laughs> and it's like so painfully slow. 
<laughs> so painfully so, yeah. slow that uh, that it's you think like the other you know you think like Steve Martin or Campbell Scott or somebody's going to jump in and interrupt him and say okay old man go get a drink you know <laughs> nobody going on a business trip would have been missed if he never arrived right I mean they're great they're just fantastic but um, and they're great examples I think of 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 his writing but I you know. Well, here's what I love yeah. about it. All right, tell me what you I I love the way that he it's that mammoth speak, the way that people say things wrong and you get in in virtually the vast majority of scripts that are written. Yes, screenwriters to varying degrees of quality are able to write in different characters. So one character sounds like that character and a different character sounds like a different character as opposed to the characters sounding like the writers. Now, maybe you could argue that Mammoth's characters all kind of sound like Mammoth <laughs> because they all kind of have this Mammoth speak. But what I do like about the way he writes is he actually writes these characters where they don't speak perfectly. And a lot of other screenwriters, because you are basically playing God, you can write exactly the thing you'd want to say and the, the great one-liner, the great quip to get back at somebody or whatever. He has people stumbling and pausing and and repeating themselves and saying clever quips, but they, they actually have the words wrong. And, and it's it feels a lot more like natural dialogue, the way people speak. Um, and people are always interrupting each other and they not finishing their thoughts. That's the stuff that Mammoth writes that I really enjoy. And uh, I, I think Glenn Gary Glenn Ross is probably my favorite example of that, even though he didn't direct that one. Um, I, I love the way that he wrote those characters. And I just felt like um, it, that's like the peak of it. This, it's, I think it's working for the most part. But I feel like sometimes some of these actors don't quite hit it out of the park like... Uh, like other actors have on other projects. and um, But I still enjoy that aspect of the writing. I think that all the clever quips and stuff I enjoy, I just feel like those are great outside of context of the film itself. You know, I, I, I want to talk about the acting and, and uh, sort of as a function of the direction of the film because I this is an area where I'm I'm torn. I'm with you. I feel like the writing is... Uh, you know, when you when I sit down and read the script, I'm vastly m more interested than when most of the actors in the film are speaking. Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I think Campbell Scott uh, does a terrific job with Mamet Speak. Yeah. Uh, I think I was pleasantly surprised that Steve Martin, um, I, I thought, did a fantastic job with Mammoth Speak. Like there, I didn't, I didn't get any sort of awkwardness. Uh, yeah, and his his doesn't uh, his. I don't think his character has quite as much Mammoth Speak as the others. Yeah. But he does it all very well, and actually, he comes across really natural in a role that it was one of his earlier, more serious roles. Um, but right, right. you know, I, I felt like uh, I felt like he played the part really, really well. No, I I do too. I mean, there was that sort of sophistication that he brought to the the role that that I think was it was interesting to watch. And I think there was Mammoth speaking there, but I think it really is a is a testament to his uh, ability to deliver it naturally in in yeah. the character. I think that that worked for me. So the the exchanges between Steve Martin and Campbell Scott for me were 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 pretty good. Everybody yeah. else, with the exception of Ricky Jay, who played Ricky Jay, 
<laughs> in this film. I think everybody else, to me, really struggled on that spectrum of mammoth speak and came off as extremely stilted. It was like, yeah. uh, you know, it was a it it was much more of had much more of a vibe of a stage play. Yeah, and uh, not not a great one. And I wonder. This is my this is the thing I've been thinking about. Is this a conscious choice of direction? Because I've seen Rebecca Pigeon in other stuff, and she's not like this. Well, I, I hate her in everything, so. <laughs> but not like this. <laughs> you know, no, I pretty much do hate her like this in everything. She's a bad one to bring up, but yes, she generally, I, actually, I shouldn't, I should say, I think I've only seen her in David Mamet films, so I don't know if it's fair to say that. I just, I don't like how she is in David Mamet films. I always struggle with her. Well, and that's my, that's my thing. And so there is this, there's this layer of sort of perception of how these characters are delivering their mammoth speak and the, this story. And it feels to me like it, it is like a veneer on top of um, the, the uh, subtext of the film, like the actors are sort of above the film uh, sort of, you know, you imagine like it, it may have been easier to deliver this film had they been wearing sort of the Greek theatrical masks, you know what Absolutely. I mean? Absolutely, right. Like, that's right. What, it, what it felt like to me. And, and I wonder if that's by conscious choice. Uh, I, I found nothing to indicate that that was true, but a lot of people who were kind of thinking that maybe this was, a, uh, this was sort of a dramatic metaphor to the con. That's possible. It's, I mean, it's an interesting way to look at it. If that's what he was really trying to do, I don't know if it was effective enough because I don't think it was so, it, I don't think it was done so deliberately that it made me instantly go to that and go, oh, I see what he's trying to do. Like, I think you'd really have to dig to find that answer in order to, in order to latch onto that. And then, Putting it in that context, I can say, okay, yeah, I can see him doing that, um, but I don't know. I guess it's well, not what's, just— what's funny about that, and the thing that turns it for me, is that if you believe that, then by the same logic, Campbell Scott and Steve Martin failed because <laughs> they weren't stilted enough. Yeah, right, right. I don't know. They were, they were much more on the ball. It's a tricky one. It's a tricky one. And I, I you know, I, I think that some of that also comes from just logic problems within the story. Uh, you know, talking about like when you watch it a second time, things don't necessarily make as much sense. And like I still don't quite understand why the US Marshals were busting uh Steve Martin at the end. I mean, it sounds to me like they were busting him because they have been following the whole time set up by Joe's boss, Mr. Klein, right? Played, played by the wonderful Ben Gazzara. Ben Gaz right, but I'm not sure why the U.S. Marshals would be involved in doing that uh, if if it was just to get to make sure that Mr. Klein, uh, I don't know, I guess I just didn't understand like how he got them tied into this. Why are they doing this, this you know, corporate bust? I don't know, I... Maybe it makes sense. Well, right, and that's the um, th that's the peril of the big reveal on the boat, right? Yeah, 
that you, you know we get this that we you know, like we already said there's there's very little that we the audience are aware of before the our protagonist is aware of it until the very end when they're doing the um, you know I would have gotten away with it too if it weren't for you lousy kids right exactly uh, and so we we have the uh, the FBI or the U.S. Marshal saying that Mr. Klein was behind the entire con. Right. Because he wanted to keep all the profits for himself. Yeah. So, it, which the, makes it sound the like... Wikipedia uh, summary. Which, yeah. Which makes it sound like he's trying to cut his other partners out by doing this. I don't know. Maybe Wikipedia well, is stating that incorrectly. Well, that's what that's what I I don't I don't understand that either because that, it it that's what it seems like it was either that Mr. Klein was trying to smoke out the, um, you know, was trying to smoke out the the um, the con, knowing that you know Jimmy was out there, uh, or that he was just trying to. Um, that he was, but did he? Uh, does he get? We don't. We don't ever get to see Mr. Klein carted off to jail. The last time we see Mr. Klein is when he's meeting uh, Joe in the prison, trying to say, you know what? I want to drop all the charges. I want to work this out. Now, what if Joe said, "Okay, let's drop the charges. Let's work this out." Like, I, I just feel like I, I don't quite understand. Yeah. Like, where would Mr. Where would Mr. Klein have gone from there? No. Oh no. I'm sorry. I was just saying that you really have to stay here. I, I don't quite get it. Yeah. And and then wouldn't he then also then be responsible for Ricky Jay's character's death? I mean, I, I don't think it was Mr. Klein that killed him. I think it was like Jimmy or his people, Jimmy or Susan or one of them. But I it feels like if you're you know, putting this this, you know, bust out on somebody who's not necessarily trying to steal your money but is doing it only because you are tricking him into trying to steal your money then yeah. the, then he would be responsible i don't know or, and, and or, or maybe it was simply the, when i first saw this i walked and and my memory of the film was that mr klein was behind it in that he did not trust uh joe, joe yeah. with the big secret and he he again hammering it over our heads he says time and time again, they they have these talks about security. Are you concerned about security? No, Joe. I'm sure it's fine. Well, it's in my safe. Well, is it really in your safe? Because I got to do this on the security and security, right. security, security, right? right? And so in the end, you know, when I walked away from the film the first time I saw it, my memory of it was that Mr. Klein was simply not trusting the fact that this incredible secret uh, process, uh, which would change the tide of the company was in the hands of this guy who wrote it in a journal. Right. Uh, and I think he was, I, I, that that he may have simply been, this may have been his way to sort of surreptitiously keep an eye on on what was going on. But yeah, even if that, it, it doesn't make any sense either, because why would they have, why would they go to all the trouble to swap the... Which, you know, I rewatched that scene, and and. Ed Neal, who plays yeah. that character, he's got to have really smooth hands. You to make didn't that. find it either. Did you find it? <laughs> I no, didn't see it. It's it's it doesn't happen. You never see him actually do the magic switch. I mean, if he if he does, it's it's when we're looking somewhere else, and he does it so smoothly. I I don't know. Ed O'Neill is just a you know a master FBI magician, I guess. 
Um, and it's kind of fun to see a younger Clark Gregg in the back as the sniper. Yes, which I had, right? I had to watch that scene going, where is Clark Gregg? Where is right. he? And then I finally, oh, that's him in the back. I hardly recognized him. Uh, you, you know, this is one of those, those mammoth things where, uh, you know, there are directors who uh, rely on misdirection through shot selection. And there are uh, directors who get away with a lot through misdirection, through shot selection. You know what I right, mean? Right, right, right. Like, in this case, I, I think there may be just a little bit too much weight on, you know, n- not even letting us rebuild the breadcrumb trail. Well, yeah, you go back and you watch, like, when they pull out the, is this your signature? And it's like the certificate to get Venezuelan citizenship because yeah. there's no extradition treaty. If you go back and watch when he signs that, it actually says it's the... it's. It says club membership decree yeah, yep. across the top. It doesn't even say anything about Venezuela. So it's like, well, this is completely an artifice. Right. Well, and then, you know, she, the ticket that he has in his hand that we've seen the close-up of in the past yeah. is is the ticket that goes back to Sandy Steph. And the ticket clearly that she goes back to the car to get is it ends up not being that ticket. Like, it's those sorts of things that you, you can't, when when you can't go back and rebuild uh, yeah. I, I think it loses credibility on on reviewing. So yeah, it's not the sixth sense where when you rewatch it, it you makes it even more. more. Yeah, it makes it more compelling and it makes it more exciting because it's woven together is so um, so uh, well. This is it works well on a first viewing, but afterward it all kind of crumbles, and it makes me wonder if if he intentionally is doing that because he clearly is a writer who loves going back and doing these sorts of con stories. I mean, this is, I think it's what his third con film that he wrote. I mean, he did, uh, what were the other ones? Um, house of games was one, right? Which, uh, which I quite liked. I don't think I've seen that one. And then he did heist. And then, you know, he also wrote or was one of the, the, like the ghost writer on Ronin, which we've talked about here right, on the show. Right. So he, he clearly loves this whole idea of cons and people pulling the wool over somebody's eyes and trying to make, you know, get, uh, make off with something. And I think he does it effectively. Uh, like I said, I haven't seen House of Games. I have seen Heist, although it's been, it wasn't since it came out, so I can't remember the con in that film. But I feel like this is kind of a weak con. I feel like it works well on a first viewing, but when you actually deconstruct it, it falls apart. So it makes me wonder, for somebody who really likes cons and likes to write cons, is he purposefully doing that? Is there some reason that he would kind of be creating kind of a, a, a con that crumbles upon uh, upon going back and looking at it. Like you said, the title itself is a con. It, we're not looking at the Spanish prisoner con. We're looking at the Murphy. So it's, yeah. it, I'm curious about that. I'm, I, exactly. And that, I think, feeds back into my issue about the performances themselves. Like every single element, uh, the structure of the con, the name of the con, the performances of the actors, the, 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 the kind of mammothness, the hyper-mammothness, of the uh, of the the script, I mean this this script does not sound like uh, heist. This script does not sound like uh, Red Belt. This this yeah. film has a unique tone, and I wonder, uh, you know, as as I keep looking at this film, and and really, I mean, I'm 
I, I think I'm I'm strangely drawn to this film. I can't. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're talking about. I mean, I feel like I'm sober. I'm clear-headed, <laughs> and we're talking about things that don't work in this film, and yet I like it. I yeah. like it, uh, and and that's a that's a I recognize that's my problem. But I wonder how many of these how many of these things were were choices that just don't stack up. Maybe it's that they just don't stack up with with one another. You know, maybe it's just a bridge too far. Um. Yeah, it's possible. I, I mean, it's a there's it's an interesting film because there's there's so much falsities all through it. The nature of Khan is just is is creating falsehoods, and that you buy as truth, and mm-hmm. and basically everything is always presented as a truth in a Khan, right. and toward, as things change and shift toward the end, those are the twists. You learn, oh, this thing that I thought was true is false. This thing is actually still true. Oh no, it's not. This is actually false. Oh, this thing that I thought was false is actually—it's a double false. It kind of keeps shifting around, and you never quite know. And it does create this kind of fantasy world, and it is interesting to buy into it. I mean, it's still—I still did find it a compelling watch. I, I did enjoy the story. I enjoyed seeing how it all played out again. I completely forgot the whole Japanese tourist thing. And so that was kind of I, that was kind of a funny twist at the end because I, I wrote down as I was writing I'm like what is up with all the Japanese tourists everywhere? <laughs> Why like what kind of gun on the mantelpiece is this? Where is he going? Is he trying to make a statement or something? And that whole little last that last line about that uh, I mean it was kind of funny, uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, nobody looks at Japanese tourists. You know, <laughs> Probably because That's they were like, from Omaha. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and they were watching Harakiri. Harakiri. This, it's, yeah, I, I don't know. Some things, some other things I like about it. I like what it, what he's trying to say with this film, right? That, that the, the whole idea of, the whole construct of trust in this film, in, in so far as, Rebecca Pigeon's role was to never let us forget that this is a movie about trust. Uh, I I really do like the the overall message, and I like the fact that it was as heavy handed as it was. Right, this was the uh, you know if you can't hide it, hang a flag on it theory of of dramatic conspiracy. Uh, we're gonna you know we we really want you to know that we don't trust big business, uh, and we don't trust what they do. So we're going to veil. Everything that we're when we're talking about, we're going to encode all of our discussions about big business and about the cultural state of business in the United States or global business. Uh, we're going to encode that in in very vague uh, nouns, uh, and and that's going to be that that becomes a statement in itself. And I I love uh, sort of that it makes the script something of a Mad Libs uh, that you can just kind of insert whatever you want. I mean. Yeah, right. If we, you could just re- start, just find and replace process for just about any major product, and and uh, and it still works. Um, and and so I like things like that. I mean, I I found myself in in terms of this being an activist film, uh, I found myself sort of compelled by that um, that angle. It is interesting. It's interesting, and at the same time, it also is. Uh, it's it's stepping away from making a decision and and being um, a really determined about making a statement 
but by doing that, it is an interesting way to make a statement, you know? Yeah. Because, because he could very blatantly be, you know, the process could be some, some uh, Wall Street secret that's going to, you know, do something for a stock or something like that. It could be, uh, you know, just a, a, a banking process that moves money through so fast that your interest rates move faster than others. I mean, I'm, these are all complete nonsense, but that's the sort of thing that the process could theoretically be, right? And it's it, it, if he labeled it as as something, I it, yes, he could have been making a very blatant statement about something in society, but by not labeling it, he he does allow you to kind of pick and choose whatever you think it's supposed to be, and there is something to that that is compelling. I, I like it in that very regard. It lets you, uh, it lets you paint this film with whatever advocacy you, sort of you hang your own hat on, and I, I like that. It I, certainly has a lot of formulas uh, that go along with it. I mean, an entire yeah. journal full of formulas. I mean, there's a lot of right. stuff going on in this in this process, and I like how he how they play this whole idea of the process where you never know what it is. You you can't tell from the journal what it is. And even when he estimates how much money they're going to make off this thing, he never shows you the figure. Right. You, it's all fra- like the way that they choose to frame shots throughout this. It's always very secretive. It's always very, you don't need to know that. We're going to hide this. Like even that, that certificate for the club, that's the club membership decree that's supposed to be Venezuela, even that is framed in a way where, I mean, I had to really go frame by frame to try to pick a letter here and there so I could figure out what it was because they obscure it in such a way and they really played with that um even his sister um steve martin jimmy's sister was always done in a way where every time he'd pull up a picture frame and and you'd look at it you'd get these these insert shots of the the frame but then they'd move it in such a way where all of a sudden a light hits the glass and you can't see it it's like well that was a weird insert because it's done in such a way where you don't get to know who the sister is and you find out why um, well, it, for us, the viewer, you find out why it doesn't matter. Um, obviously, Joe can see who it is in the context of the film. But it's interesting how Joe is allowed to see those things, but we as the audience are not letting us know, yes, you, it doesn't matter. This is, this is all, part of the, all part of the heist. There is a, uh, there's a great... There are these other great elements, particularly around the company, the things that we are, you know, we're meant to see uh, versus the things we're meant to ignore. Uh, when he is about to take a call, he walks out, he's frustrated by the meeting that he's had with, with Ben Gazzara, and he feels accosted by the attorneys. Uh, and he walks out into the hallway and he tells the, the assistant, you know, can you get me, you know, Jimmy Dell's? Uh, number do you have a number call him connect him and then he steps over into a sitting area and do you remember what the poster is on the wall behind him yeah it is uh somebody talked yeah someone someone talked talked bright white (laughs) on a dark background and i for the life of me can't quite figure out what the image is it looks like (laughs) it's a finger it's a finger it looks like somebody it's a finger. I thought it, it almost hand. looks like well, a, a hand, hand coming out of a grave. Like it looks like <laughs> is like buried. It looks, it looks pretty frightening. Yeah, it's this big hand. <laughs> it's terrifying. Pointing. Yeah, it's just terrifying. And so uh, you know that I I think is it, it, the the film is it, you know when he when they start peppering in some of those hammering you over the head visuals now on top of the script on top of it's just another layer of uh, of these elements to to remind you that you don't own your your thinking right now. Right. Right. Yeah, 
it's it it is an interesting game that he's playing here and it has a lot of problems but at the same time there is something entertaining about it yeah. and uh maybe it's that it's that this film is uh there is is i think a a real highlight in Mamet's career that there isn't a single obscenity in it yeah well, that, that's this true. dude is foul mouthed uh, right in in his other work for stage and screen and this is his uh his this is rating with no obscenities yeah uh, i don't know i don't know a lot of people a lot of the critics uh, seem to to like this film as sort of middling on the um, kind of metacritic scale uh, seven or 70 or something like that uh ebert gives it a gives it a three and a half out of four guy seems yeah, it's it's a film that I I think people liked. I'd be curious if these critics went back and rewatched it. Yeah, if those if those numbers would slide down a little easy, bit. I mean, easy to do that on you know when you're writing a review in April of 1998. Right, and you've just seen it, and this mystery seems really fresh, and you're like, oh, I like the way that they they played me for a sucker this whole time, and every twist and turn, I always was wrong. You know, it's very, it's very clever. It's just when you, when you deconstruct it, all of a sudden it's not holding up. And I think there is still something interesting in it. The, the mammothness of it, I enjoy, but I, I would say that it's probably taken a step down on, on my overall rankings. It has for me too. I think that's fair to say. I, um, you know, I enjoyed it. It seems like the public was not as uh, enthusiastic about it as uh, maybe the critics were. It did not do screamingly well at the box office. It didn't do, uh, no, it didn't do well at all. Um, (laughs) I I mean, it did make, it did make money. It just didn't really make a lot. What I saw is that it cost $10 million to make. And it made, uh, it made ten million one hundred sixty-two thousand thirty-four dollars. So it just broke even. It just barely scraped by. Uh, it's right now. We when we talked about Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist not too long ago, that was our lowest profitable film on our list. That has now been supplanted by the Spanish Prisoner, which now has has actually made less money but still profited on our <laughs> list so so there I you love, go i love that that's become a ranking <laughs> that's right oh <laughs> uh, uh, that's good all right well and i, I don't and i don't think this one is one that has really benefited from any sort of cult following in no the years. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I think we're uh, we're dusting this one off. Uh, I, it feels a little bit like we're dusting this off out of charity right now. But it was it's a good film. I still like it. I'm compelled to watch it. I'm not going to I'm not going to give up on you, Spanish prisoner. But um, but I, I have less uh, my, my sort of state dependent memory is is clear. I have less justification of why after uh, watching it and talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. So. Anyhow, yeah. let's let's rank this thing. Yes, let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel and you can see all of our rankings. Last I it, was it was it just last week that we had our first ranking that debuted outside of the top one hundred? 
I, you know, I, I feel like there may have been another one, but it's it was the first one that I um, that stuck in my head that definitely yeah. came. Yeah. I'm I'm a little bit worried. Yeah, the Spanish prisoner uh, may not fare too well. <laughs> we shall see. Uh, are you ready? I am ready. The Spanish prisoner or the born identity? Born identity. Yes, sir. Uh, the Spanish prisoner or big fish? Big fish. Oh, please. No, I would pick big fish. <laughs> you go. <laughs> the Spanish prisoner or the wolverine? <laughs> Oh, this is so much harder for you. This is full you. of Japanese who are not tourists. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. I would, I would pick the Wolverine. I know. Wow. Bullet train, I guess, maybe. Bullet I train. Know. Okay. I, I, I would also pick the Wolverine. All right. The Spanish prisoner or the fifth element? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Uh-oh. man. I would do the fifth element because it does it is eye candy. There is an amazing the Spanish prisoner, aside from the way that he did framing with his shots, I, I was really unimpressed with the overall cinematography. It was very kind of bland to me. It didn't stand out. And Carter Burwell's music, um, it felt just very Carter Burwell esque without giving me a whole lot more. So the fifth element at least is total eye candy. Yeah, yeah. I no, I I agree. <laughs> All right, wow, that's fast. I know the Spanish prisoner, or now you see me, <laughs> the Spanish prisoner. Oh, that's a tough one. I really didn't like now you see me. I I would have to go the Spanish prisoner over now you see me. Yeah, absolutely would. The Spanish prisoner or Strange Days. The Spanish prisoner. If again, and this is what I will say every time I have I to know. rank against Strange Days, if I could rank just against the trailer or of Strange Days, the initial teaser trailer, or just the opening um, sequence, but I would can't. I would almost always pick Strange Days. But because I have to include the rest of the film, the Spanish Prisoner is what wins out here. <laughs> the Spanish Prisoner or the Blob? The Spanish Prisoner. Uh, Spanish prisoner. I kind of like the blob. I feel like I would rather sit down and watch the blob. I would I would say that, but uh, you know, that would last exactly 10 minutes. And then I'd get <laughs> bored cuz I've totally been there and I'd go back to the Spanish prisoner because of Ricky J. And the and the mammoth wit. All right. All rip, right. Rapy our wit. Yes, yes, yes. Wow. All right. 112. Out of 118. Uh, oh, I Feel a little dirty about that. <laughs> you just have to remember, we have a lot of films on here that we really like. That we really like. I know. We and and easily a hundred that we feel quite strongly about. Yes. Uh, so we're we're leaving uh, the uh, leaving this one. We're moving on uh, next uh, next week to another Mammoth film, Red Belt. You have not seen this. Is that true? Have you seen it already? I have not seen it. I uh, It just arrived, and I'm quite excited to check it out. This it's got one, Chewy. I'm, it's got Chewetel IGO 4 and uh, this, let's see, when this, this came out in 2008, and so we have to say, I mean, there's, there's a good 10 years of, you know, mammoth experience in this film. This has a, I, I think, a great cast. Uh, you know, uh, Chewie, uh, Tim Allen, Joe Mantegna, Ricky Jay is back, Emily Mortimer, 
Alice Braga, Rebecca Pigeon, um, again. Uh, I I think I I don't want to like upload it too much. I'll just say I was pleasantly surprised by how I felt about this film. Well, I'm looking forward to it. It's not at all the film that I thought it was going to be. So, well, I will take that for what it's worth. Stuff that down your mammoth. <laughs> is that a place? Is that a thing? <laughs> where, hey, where is one's mammoth? Hey, speaking of, of getting things stuffed in your mammoth, boy, did we make some friends in our conversation about say anything. Oh, boy, we sure did. I think the best one was, uh, best comment on Facebook was our actual dear, possibly former friend of the show, uh, <laughs> friend Monica, who says, whose comment was, I'm going to watch this film and then we're going to fight. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that awesome. was that was great. There are a lot of people that feel very strongly, but you know what? I feel like, uh, and this is why I'm bringing this up, even though we were vilified for our uh, opinions on this particular film, with the exception of, again, friend of the show, John Foster, who also seems to hate everything. <laughs> uh, we, I, I feel about Spanish Prisoner as I think many feel about Say Anything. Like, in spite of its weirdness and kind of faults, there is an unnatural connection to that film that is highly based on context and age and hormones. And I get that. Yes. And I would totally pick Say Anything over the Spanish Prisoner. <laughs> I would also pick Say Anything. Obviously, it's above it on a flick chart. Yeah, see? yeah. Flick chart works. Flick chart does work. Flick chart yeah. pays off. All right. Uh, so Red Belt next week, uh, you doing anything good? Uh, anything else good? We we do have uh, we have a b- before Red Belt. You will hear a uh, a great big special, very special episode. Of VSE got another VSE coming up. Uh, oh, this weekend we're gonna be we're gonna be uh, the the film board convenes to take on Thor. The, the dark dark world. Who will come out the victor? The film board. Or Thor. <laughs> uh, I. What do you? What, what's your? What's your bet? You haven't seen it yet. When are you going to see it? I'm going to try to see it tomorrow night. I'm going uh, tomorrow at eleven thirty or something. Yeah. And so uh, I'll be sure to call you right after I see it and tell you what happens. And <laughs> tell me all about it. Yeah. And then this happened, and then this, and then this <laughs> and one then I did this, science. and then that, and science. Uh. So you're gonna, have to repost, you're gonna have to repost that. On I know it was too Facebook good. Page. It yes. was too too good. Um, so this is gonna be good. Uh, Thor: The Dark World. Uh, you know, I'm I'm interested in this. Alan Taylor, big fan of uh, Alan Taylor, done some good work in. Uh, yeah, I'm curious to see what he can pull off. Yeah, he's done some great work. So very interested in this. Very curious about it. So that that we'll be recording that on Sunday evening, once everybody has a chance to to see it. So uh, look for that on Monday. We'll have that up in the feed, and then uh, we'll be back next week for a belt. Thanks, everybody. Andy, you have anything else? Nope. I got to go to bed.
You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. It's the way to go. Okay, we're going to play a little game, Pete. I'm going to name a series from season three, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations. Oh, <laughs> you and your games. All right, first up, drama of the Brothers Cohen. Okay, that's super easy because the Cohen brothers so rarely do adaptations. It's no country for old men. Okay, how about rom-com? Okay, let's see. Not Sleepless in Seattle. Uh, about a boy. Yep, one more. Hmm. Uh, Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist? There it is, you got it. We have covered lots of great movies that started as books, and most of those are on Audible. Books like Forrest Gump, Apollo 13, Being There, or The Day of the Locust. The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, and City of God. So many great movies from so many great sources. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but it takes a lot of time. We have dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they are so annoying and they have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things wherever they see fit. We listened when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it, too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out, and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. 